Working Class Audio is brought to you by Universal Audio, Audio Technica, Loudon Audio, Focal Monitors, and Gearsluts.com. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 138. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 138 you're listening to. Very happy to announce that my guest today is Mr. Ryan Massey, owner of Sharkbite Studios in Oakland, California. I have talked about Sharkbite uh, since, I think, the early days of the podcast. It was the one of the first studios that, after I gave up my studio in San Francisco, it's the studio I kind of, um, I guess you could say I... Uh, gravitated to. Yeah, that would be a good word. Gravitated to because it was affordable. It had a really strong infrastructure. We talk about infrastructure quite a bit, actually, in the interview. Um, and it had a great owner who really just gave a shit about his place. And uh, so Ryan is on, also an engineer, musician, Ryan Massey coming up. He stopped by my house. We chatted. I got him all hopped up on coffee and got him going. And that's always good when you get somebody hopped up on coffee and you get them rambling, get them going. So, uh, yeah. So Ryan Massey coming up. So as you listen to this, I'm actually in New Mexico right now. And, uh, I'm actually in Las Cruces, New Mexico, which is the home of course of uh, former WCA guest, David Wheeler and Emmett Brooks. Yeah. Doing a lot of traveling this year in the back half of the year I seem to be going many more places and of course in september i will be heading off as i have mentioned before to france to go to mix with the masters where i will be doing the chad blake seminar and i will of course report as much as i can about that of course there are some uh limitations you know i can't actually interview chad there at the at the at the complex at uh, studio la fabrique uh, there's kind of a you know little bit of an agreement there, you know, that's their thing. And, uh, if Chad and I do something, uh, later on, of course, that's, that's always doable, but we haven't arranged that. Uh, but I'll talk about the trip and I'll kind of just document a little bit about some of the details around it. So that if others are thinking about doing it, you have a point of reference and, uh, a kind of a firsthand account, you know, I mentioned, uh, booking the flight, uh, I got the flight. The original flight was going to be $1,400 and I kept an eye on it and I procrastinated. And I mentioned this in past, in a past show where I was doing it through Google and because I was logged into Chrome and I have a Google phone, I was getting updates from Google about the price of the flight. Long story short, I did get the flight for $567 round trip from San Francisco to uh, Charles de Gaulle uh, in uh, Paris. Yeah, that's a cool thing. Now, the cost. I haven't actually told anybody the cost of what, what it was. Now, so I'm going to tell you that right now. Uh, it was expensive. But as I, and I sound like I'm selling my wife on it right now, but, you know, it's a once-in-a-lifetime thing. I don't I don't foresee doing this again because of, of the cost, but it was $4,600 roughly. It's 4,000 euros. Now, mentally, I was prepared to pay 3,000. And when they accepted me, they came back and said, okay, great, you're accepted. You know, here are the details. Here's the cost. Uh, please let us know either way what you would like to do. And I, at first, was like, oh, wow, 4,000 euros. Hmm. Was mentally prepared for 3,000 euros. So, or just slightly less than that. So, yeah, I kind of 
looked into my bank account and I looked into my soul and talked to my wife. And I just decided that, you know what, this is an investment in myself. And I've spent stupid money, hand over fist, just time after time on silly things. So I figured this is something worthwhile. This is something, this is an investment in myself. So yeah. So you got about $4,600 there. You got, if you shop around, you get a good flight, 567 there. Now I'm going to get there a little early and try to acclimate so the idea, of course, is to get rid of the jet lag. Well, not entirely, but do my best. So they can't actually have me show up and stay at Studio La Fabrique earlier than the 20th. So uh, they have a hotel nearby that they use. And so I'm going to stay at this hotel and walk around. And uh, friends of mine tell me that it's a great place to check out. So that's a good thing. That's it so far. I do when I, so the idea is, you, you know, you do, I'm going to fly SFO to Salt Lake City, change planes, go on over to uh, CDG. From there, I will immediately, I, well, not immediately, within two or three hours, I'll catch a train and I will then take the train for three hours uh, to a town. And I'm going to mispronounce this, I know, but it's called Avignon. That's, I believe that's how you say it. Anyway, so I'm going to take a train from Paris to Avignon, uh, then stay there for, I think, uh, one night, maybe two nights. And then, um, then they pick me up at uh, the hotel and they take me over to Studio La Fabrique. And then after that, you know, like all meals and all that, you know, that's obviously covered in the cost. You're staying in a very, very nice place. And I don't know if I get my own room yet or not. I was... Based on conversations, I'm led to believe that's what I get, but I could be wrong. I don't know. Either way, then we uh, we hang out, we do the thing with Chad, and uh, of course, I will probably try to post as best I can about that as uh, as I'm there. The plan is to do that, but we'll just have to see what the reality is. I'm not sure what what's possible. So there it is. Yeah. Mixed with the masters. I'll keep you informed. And uh, those are the details. So yeah, I hope that helps. If you plan on going, uh, save your pennies. You know, like I say, you've probably spent that much money on beer in the course of your life, if not more. So figure that you're just going to have to go without, go with less beer for the next several years. Uh, if you want to go, I think that's a good swap. I think that's a good exchange. You know, back to the cost of it. Uh, the one thing that I made sure that I did in the spirit of you know, being out of debt, credit card debt is I paid for it in cash and that I'm really happy about. So I know that when I get back on the high of a great, great experience, uh, I won't have to worry about paying off a credit card and that's super important. Anyhow, uh, not a lot of show notes today. Of course, you know, I'm going to bring it up again, the Ren M software metadata from, uh, Soundways. I'll include a link in the show notes for that. How about that? Uh, what else? What else? Um, don't have much else except to, of course, uh, remind you to head on over to uh, gearslets.com and check out Audio Life, which we're a part of. And uh, make sure that, uh, you know, by the time you hear this, it is, we are in August. So August 31st, the Rack Dream Studio promotion, the Apollo Rack Dream Studio promotion ends from Universal Audio. So make sure you check that out. That's important because, of course, you're going to get a lot of plugins to add to your Apollo purchase, which is also a great thing. Really in love with that whole system. Really works well for me. And uh, was talking, in fact, when uh, Ryan uh, was leaving, he was looking over at my Apollos and we were discussing the, the possibilities of the setups and just, you know, the times we live in that we can get away with, you know, a few Apollos with some uh, 
mic amp modeling, mic pre-modeling and EQ and compressor modeling on the channel as you go in recording in such a small footprint, you know, with a laptop. It's just, it's pretty striking what you can get away with these days. So that is that. So be sure to check that out, uaudio.com. Get your Apollo with that promo while you still can at that price. Okay, well, I think it's time to uh, put up or shut up. So uh, I'm going to shut up here and I'm going to get over to our interview with Mr. Ryan Massey. So here it is, Ryan Massey here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Well, welcome to the podcast and thanks for thanks for coming my way. Absolutely. And coming over. I thought it was totally about time I get you on because I have talked about the studio like probably since day one on the podcast in episode here, episode there, just kind of explaining my workflow and how I generally default going to shark bite. So let's start there. Let's start with shark bites history because you're, you weren't the originator of it. Correct. And tell me a little more about that. So uh, a guy named Mark Keaton founded Sharkbite, I think right around 1994, and uh, built it in a large warehouse location in West Oakland. I'm not exactly, I think it was like down on Union Street. From what I understand, it was just sort of this large kind of bizarre complex, like the studio had a half court basketball court in it. There were people who lived down sort of sketchy self-built hallways, you know. Um, apparently the live room sounded amazing. It had super high ceilings and everything, but, you know, kind of had your standard Mackie 8 bus of the day and, uh, I don't know, probably ADATs. I'm not even sure. It was ADATs because I, I remember... Oh, you were at that location? I, I, I had been to that location when it was being ah. put together. I don't know why I was there, How my connection to that, but somehow... I remember that. Okay. So from there, at some point, Mark hooked up with this guy, Charles Rook. And Charles, his history is uh, long and distinguished in sort of the recording and music worlds. But uh, he was from Santa Barbara and in the early days hooked up with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Mm. Charles, well, he, he's an electrical engineer by trade, worked in music shops, owned a music shop at one point. He was the guy for Vox AC30s. He became... The Heartbreakers, I think basically their main roadie, fixed all their gear. I think it was Mike Campbell's kind of go-to guy. And he did that for years. At some point, he became Bob Dylan's guy and was living on Dylan's property in Malibu and running his studio there. I think he actually had a lot to do with Dylan and Petty ending up touring together because they would both be hacked off when Charles couldn't go on tour with them. So anyway, Charles hooked up with Mark. Mark was doing a project with somebody, and that person kind of brought Charles in, and that's how they met. And at some point, Mark decided to build at a new location. Charles basically helped design the whole thing. And so that's one of the reasons why sort of our underlying infrastructure is as solid as it is. For a project studio, which they would have called it in the, you know, heady days of the late 90s, it had all the little I's dotted and T's crossed. You know, the speaker can be patched to and from any room. Instrument can be patched to and from any room. You know, there was no, the studios I was used to going to at the time, you know, you were always like running cables under doors and shit like that. So, you know, Charles put a lot of thought into it and, and designed the room nicely. So the studio has been in its current location since 99. And then I started making records there, I think, in 99 or 2000. And that would have been with my band, American Steel. Kevin Army had started doing sessions there, um, and he brought us there. And then probably a couple of years later, I was lucky enough to convince Mark he should hire me. 
AES was in town. And I was like, man, I should get Mark to go to AES and like hang out. And maybe, you know, it'll be cool. And it went really well. And I had already made a bunch of records there as a freelance engineer. Okay. And I ended up getting a sort of like a part-time studio management job and did that for a few years. And then Mark wanted to sell. I was devastated because I had a job at a recording studio, which was incredible. I was lucky enough to uh, hook up with an old friend who actually, one of my bandmates and I, we used to live on her floor when she was going to Cal and we were ne'er-do-well punk rockers touring the world. When we'd come home, we'd crash on Casey's floor. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Casey uh, was a grown-ass adult with uh, a real job and money. And she was like, we should totally, you know, make that studio thing happen. And and we've been partners ever since. So Casey does all the books, all the uh, all of that sort of side of things. Never met Casey. She is in the, uh, she's in Southern California. Yeah, she doesn't, I mean, she's come up here a handful of times over the years. I mean, we talk basically every day. Kind of a silent partner, really. Silent partner, other than, I mean, she's she's taught me a lot over the years. I never meant to be in business, you know. She yeah. uh, she takes care of the books. She helped teach me about like, yeah, I know it's cool if your brand has a free place to rehearse, but that's actually like $700 out of our budget every month. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, that kind of sucks, doesn't it? You know, oh, so yeah. she was really on it with stuff like that. And then I'm there taking care of the studio, making sure, you know, running the brass tacks of the actual studio operation. You mentioned the infrastructure, and that's probably, that that word is the number one word I think I use when I talk about Shark Bite. Because people say, well, why, why should we go there? And I'm like, well, number one, it's affordable. And two, it's got one of the best infrastructures of any studio in the Bay Area, especially at that price point. First of all, everything always works that you need to work. And you, like you say, you can patch anything into anywhere. It's funny you would even call it a project studio of the 90s. When you think about what it would have been at that time, I mean, you know, you still had bigger studios going strong. Not only, you know, sort of the East Bay side of things, but San Francisco had a number of big studios that were still more happening at that time. So Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I don't know. But it's a great place. Uh, I love it. It's, you know, that big live room. You can get great drum sounds there. And then you have, you know, two extra ISO booths and then a third, like, mini room. and Three ISO booths. Three ISO booths. One, <laughs> two. Well, technically, what I would call booths, are the two small ones with, okay. the, with, with the sliding glass doors. And then the other one, well, I guess the other one has a sliding glass door too. The one where you keep all the mics. Yeah, you're selling me short, kid. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, I, I call that, I don't even think of that as an ISO booth. It's so big. Yeah. When they originally built the place, they called that the lounge, which is what it says, because that was before there was the lounge down the hallway. But that was oh. really uncomfortable. The, the first session I ever did there, we were like sort of crammed in there and there's lots of loud happening on the other side. This is weird. So at yeah, some that point, that just weird. kind of became another booth. Okay, so you have Sharkbite Studios, but you also are owner of the business next door, which is Jack London Rehearsal. Yeah. Same landlord, same building. When did that come in the in the order of things? So the deal with Sharkbite at the time I first started going there was there was the studio, uh -huh. and then there were eight rehearsal studios. Obviously, that was a good thing as far as, uh, you know, there was rent coming in on a monthly basis and helping make the basic nut. But it could also be a bummer. You know, you've got the loudest band ever practicing in a not all that well insulated room at high level. And you're trying to like, you know, record an acoustic guitar or just really the number of people in the hallway. You know, I'm I don't know. I'm just sort of sensitive to that kind of thing. It would be like. Oh yeah, there's there's all these like, you know, 
people running up and down the hallway and yelling and doing whatever. It was just kind of a bummer. And, so, and let me interrupt for one sec, just for the listener. When you come into the door at Shark Bite, the hallway that Ryan's talking about is this hallway that leads up to the main door of of Shark Bite of the of the studio itself. And there's all these doors. In fact, Scott Evans, who's been on the show, he's got one of these rooms now. Uh, so these are the rooms we're talking about. Basically, a series of rooms off the main hallway, right outside the door. Yeah. And so it was one of those things where, like, when I was just kind of working there for Mark, uh-huh. you could kind of do what he did, which was be like, oh, yeah, don't worry about that. You know, it never goes to tape. It's fine. Once I took ownership of the place, that just, like, killed me. I want everybody's experience to be really good. And when it isn't, I'm really bummed out. It was an uncomfortable thing for me. And we got really lucky. Uh, our landlord loves us. He had a really great relationship with Mark before we moved in. Um, you know, we've always paid rent on time every month. And it's been, I mean, what's it been now? Uh, 18 years, something like that, that the studio has been there. Mm-hmm. And he likes that there's music happening in his building. You know, he owns a hardware store on the corner. But I, I think he thinks what we do is cool, which is awesome. Hmm. Uh, he's a great guy. But he approached us. There was a furniture store next door that took up going to say around 12,000 square feet. He said, Hey, could you do anything with that? And shark bite was going well, but you know, it's not a growth business, (laughs) you know, it was like slow and steady and whatever. And, uh, we were happy with what we were doing, but, uh, it was a, it was a pretty overwhelming idea to take on that project. Again, not the kind of thing I would have foreseen myself doing, but I talked it over with Casey and, you know, we had a big waiting list for the rehearsal rooms that we had then, I didn't want rehearsal in the building anymore, so it was kind of a way of solving a number of problems at once. Hmm. So we built out that whole 12,000 square feet with uh, 34 rehearsal rooms and then migrated everybody from the Shark Bite building over to there and then gradually over time started repurposing what used to be rehearsal rooms into a formal lounge. There are now two mastering studios and two smaller recording studios. Yeah, that's right, because you... um... Piper Payne has recently moved into there. Right. Also been on the show. And Scott Evans, as I mentioned. And then there's who else? Aaron Hellum runs Hellum Sound. Yeah, I've been trying to hook up with him to get him on the show. Yep. He does great work. Uh, so he has what used to be my large mixing room and then a control room. Uh, so it's a pretty, it, what what I call the mixing room is actually big enough to be a pretty large uh, live space. Hmm. Really nice little studio for him. And then we've got one other guy doing mastering. I'm not allowed to talk about. Uh, <laughs> um, he works for somebody who doesn't want it known. But uh, so, yeah, it's worked out really well. I mean, the the rehearsal studios, we haven't had a vacancy in a couple of years. It's nice to have so many recording engineers in the building. It's like having coworkers, even though we're not technically coworkers. Uh, we see each other in the lounge, bullshit a little bit, talk about clients, whatever. Uh, There's kind of a camaraderie in the building. And so it's worked out really well. And the number one thing, there's parking. There is some parking. There is some excellent parking to be had. And it's not, I never feel like I need to worry about my car. Yeah. I mean, it's Oakland. You know, things happen. Things happen. But I, you know, if you're, if you kind of, you know, carry that with you and don't leave anything in the front seat, generally I don't worry about the car. There's a parking lot. And it's walkable to food and, yeah. Yeah, that's a nice, I mean, for for my band, we never had formal rehearsal space. Uh, I mean, back in the day, like I was always living in some shady warehouse and we would, you know, build something out or, and there was one place in East Oakland that we were at for a while that was super sketchy, but it was kind of a crazy thing when we started rehearsing at Shark Bite and it was like, oh, like 
we can walk to food. <laughs> wow. Oh, it's like, <laughs> but yeah, the, I mean, it's kind of a crazy thing right now. Most neighborhoods in the Bay Area, the Jack London Square neighborhood is changing extremely rapidly. Back when we were first making records there, I mean, there was like, in our price range, because we were super broke at the time, there was like basically one place we could eat, which was a burrito place called Clancy's, which was really as bad as you might guess. Yeah, burritos and the name Clancy's. Right. Yeah, mm. it was like a Mexican food joint had kind of taken over an Irish bar, but nobody ever went there. And it was, yeah, it was bad. Hmm. But now it's like, you know, they've built all these condos in the neighborhood and property values are skyrocketing. And uh, so then come all the fancy pants eateries and so forth. But for right now, while we, still have an extensive lease, you know, it's an enjoyable thing to be able to mosey out into the world and have pleasant stuff to go to. That power thing across the street, is that a substation? Yes. Okay. Giant transformers and surge protector type things in, in on large on a large scale. That's not going anywhere anytime soon. Uh, you'd like to think not. I mean, probably our biggest existential threat is if the Oakland A's decide to build a uh, stadium at Howard Terminal. Uh, would be if the city were to decide uh, in its infinite wisdom that we were uh, we should be taken down by eminent domain. I mean, that and earthquake are pretty much the two things I worry about because other than that, everything's super solid these days. God. But hopefully they'll choose another location. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's... Because they'll pay out the building owner, but I don't think they would pay me out anything. So Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's... Fingers crossed. How do you run these two businesses? Do they complement one another? I mean... From a from a, a bookkeeping perspective, are they just two separate businesses entirely? No, no, everything's pretty integrated. We've got a DBA for the rehearsal studios, and that's who rehearsal clients write their checks to. Got it. But I I wanted to differentiate the two, uh, especially when we first started it, partly because I love the recording studio thing. I'm not so totally in love with the rehearsal studio thing. I think. The clients there are, I mean, they're very happy with the space. Um, I get nothing really but positive feedback. We do our best to keep it really above average clean and and well-maintained. Yeah, for a rehearsal space, that place is really clean. Yeah, and I think at this point I'm more okay with it. It's just like, I don't know if it's the... uh, the old punk rocker in me or whatever. It was just like, it was one thing to be running a recording studio, which is I've been in recording studio since I was a kid and is a passion. And it was another thing to, to be doing the rehearsal thing, which felt much more of just like business dude kind of thing to be doing. But they are complimentary in the sense that there have definitely been clients on the rehearsal side who record at the studio, but I don't really push that. You know, there's not, I don't even have flyers or posters about the recording. You know, I, I really try to keep our public profile about where we are and all that pretty low. We have enough, we have enough business just through word of mouth that there's nothing more I really need to do. Obviously it's frustrating, but at the same time, it's, it makes me feel good when I, I text you, Hey, you know, do you have these dates? And when you say no, I'm like, ah, that's a drag. I'll have to figure something out, but I'm happy to know that I'm happy to know that you're busy because if you're busy, I know that that means longevity and a fruitful studio, which is what I want in a studio. You want, you want the studio to survive. It's all as great as it would be to have it be like, you know, my little secret. (laughs) I just go there whenever, you know, that doesn't work. So that's that, that's great in that respect. My conversations with you over the years, every time I talk business with you or money, I always get the feeling like you really have it together. You and Casey really have your shit together because 
you just, I don't know, there's something about those conversations. I'm like, oh, okay, Ryan's Ryan's really kind of holding down the ship really well here and not like going nutso, buying a bunch of gear and also making really smart decisions about the gear that you do need to buy. And case in point is the patch bay. So you've got a Trident TSM, great board. I enjoy working on it, but the sometimes you'd patch and it's the typical issues. Sometimes you'd be like, well, how come that's not working? Well, rather than go and buy a new board, you you did the unsexiest thing in the world and you rebuilt the patch bay in such a way that it's so much better than it ever was or ever i think was initially designed to be when you did that i was like wow that was a real mature move because most people i think would have said ah let's just buy a new board go into debt yeah but i mean what what are you going to buy right i mean there's a lot of consoles on the market and i think you know there's some smaller ones that could make sense but if i'm literally talking about replacing a 40 input 32 monitor console with like, you're well over $100,000 to get something of its same quality level. Mm. Um, yeah. And to me, there's no business plan in the modern recording world in owning a console that costs over $120,000. Like to me, that's just untenable. We charge $450 a day, including engineer, or $250 without engineer. So to make that back and still have enough money to, make it worth doing the job. There's just no business plan in that. I love the TSM. We'd already put a ton of work into it. Actually, back when Mark still owned the studio was the first time we flew John Clutt out, who used to actually install the TSMs when they were new. So we flew him out from New York, and he basically set up a program for recapping the entire console. So he was out for maybe, I don't know, five, three days, three, five, I don't know, somewhere in there so long ago. And he taught me how to recap the console. Hmm. So he set me up with all the components. I was already really good at soldering. One of my many crappy jobs I had over the years was soldering circuit boards for a company that made marine stuff. So I was good at soldering. And so I recapped the entire console. And then, you know, you fix one problem, you find more. It's like, well, yeah, now you did that. Well, we should really replace all the input pots. Okay, we replaced all the input pots. Uh, you know, this thing leaks aux signal to ground, which was a problem the Tridents had back then. So, oh, now we're installing all these push-pull pots so that you can kill the signal completely. And so there had already been a ton of work done to the console to make it as stable as it was probably by the time you first came to the, the studio. Mm -hmm. The TSMs came with a modular jack bay, so 40 across and on cards. And then each card had these plastic... TT jacks that were in plastic housings. And, and, you know, audio was basically repurposing the telephone company's shit. You know, it's not like audio companies were coming up with these standards of TT and stuff. But these, these bays were not only never meant to be used in this capacity, but they certainly weren't meant to last, you know, from that console was probably first installed in, I don't know, 77, 78. It wasn't meant to last 30 years, you know? So... Again, this is many years after we first had John out, but I called him up and said, look, I think most of the problems that I have left now are related to this, this patch bay. You know, just little things like maybe one channel, it works if you patch from uh, mic pre-out out of that, but it no longer will uh, normal, you know? Mm. There were just all these little tells, you know, or that you could stick a cable in and out a few times and it would work. So he basically hired a Nell's... Oh, I'm going to screw up the name right now. No, I'm totally screwing up the name. But uh, guy from Eisen Audio, 
I'll get back to that. But yeah. basically they collaborated and came up with new cards to replace the old ones that used brand new audio accessories, super high grade jacks that should last for the rest of the time I own the studio. And we have essentially a brand new patch bay. We had to have a new faceplate made for it. And since we did that, it, I mean, it literally got rid of 90% of the issues that we had. So not a very fun way to spend $11,000. You know, it's not like, hey, look, I bought the new, you know, two new tube mics or whatever. But it's also, it's the heart of the studio. It's the, or I guess more like the brain of the studio, you know, it's sending neurons out everywhere. And without that working, everything's fucked. So that's why we did that. And as for other stuff, you know, just purchasing and everything. In the early days when I first bought the place, you know, I'm looking at like, fantasies gear list and I'm looking at like, oh, and here's what tiny telephone does. And here's what this place does. And there was a time at the beginning where I tried to chase some of that stuff. I mean, well, we got to buy this and then that's going to get us to the end. And, and over time I came to realize that our best move was to sort of get in where we fit in and not try to chase the super high end sort of cork sniffing gear snob, you know, um, <laughs> it just like, <laughs> I can't do that. I'm not a trust fund baby. We need to make money. So I try to pick solid gear that will do a really good job. And that, uh, you know, I, I've got a lot of guitar amps and, you know, keyboards and fun stuff for people to play around with. But I, I basically, I came to the re realization that if you couldn't make a good record with the gear we had, it wasn't our fault. It was you. Um, and I also found that customers who would call up demanding a certain piece of gear were the worst customers to have. So the kind of people who want to use us gravitate towards us. And yeah. uh, I still buy new gear, of course, but I try to find something that's not being used, sell that, and then bring in the new exciting thing rather than just ever expanding into gear insanity. Ryan Massey here on the Working Class Audio Podcast going to take a sponsor break here with our friends over at Audio Technica. And this time, you know, going back to my earlier conversation in the opening of the show, talking about flying to mix with the masters, this time I'm actually going to get on it and get myself a pair of noise canceling headphones from Audio Technica. And I'm sitting here looking at the website, which is of course, audio-technica.com. And if you look under, um, look at the quiet point noise canceling headphones, Man, there's a lot of choices. It looks like there's 11 different possibilities, in-ear as well as over-the-ear. I think I'm going to go with something over-the-ear and uh, try to stick to a particular price point. Of course, they're all, yeah, I guess the most expensive one is, is $200. And then, you know, on the average, most of them are under $100. So check that out. Um, looks like the uh, possibility for me is going to be the ATHA and C9s. So those... Those look like they totally go over the air. Anyhow, so going to get those for that long flight to uh, Paris. You know, those flights can be a little bit uh, hard on the hard on the body sitting for that period of time and having all that airplane noise. So this is going to help me help me kind of power through that. So make sure you check that out for yourself. Always consider these as an alternative to that other company that's out there that's been out there kind of, you know, making themselves known for some time. And consider the uh, the Quiet Point active noise canceling headphones from uh, Audio Technica. That's it. Let's get back into it with our friend Ryan Massey here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. I assume that you make a point of having like a certain amount of 
buffer. Yeah. I mean, Casey keeps money set aside uh, in sort of the rainy day fund, not only if a piece of gear breaks. I mean, just last month, our air conditioner went down and, you know, turns out a new air conditioner has to be craned onto the roof at a cost of $20,000. So, I mean, you have to have a, a slush fund for that kind of thing set aside. And also, you know, just realistically, if something catastrophic were to happen, earthquake, whatever it is, do you have enough money to cover the rent for a while while you lick your wounds and try to keep pushing forward? So I can be fairly conservative, so it's not that hard to convince me to do that kind of thing, but it definitely took Casey pushing me that way, especially at the beginning when it's like, I want to do everything and I want to do it now. I want to fix everything. I want to buy everything and make it perfect. Um, and you just kind of had to learn to make slow and steady progress. So Casey was kind of the the, the disciplined one financially? Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. I had never in my life written a check for, for the kind of, I mean, even just what our rent is, you know, it was like, when we did this, I was living in a single family home in San Francisco, but my whole history from the time I was 21 years old was basically punk rock touring, hand to mouth, band dude stuff. Yeah. So she came from a completely different world. You know, she had graduated from Cal. Her family had some money. You know, it's like uh, she had gone into business straight out of school, owned, you know, like apartment complexes and shit like that. So she came from that world and then we've pushed and pulled and- it's been one of those things where we both bring something to the table and have learned both of each other's viewpoints over time. But she's not a musician. Nope. Nope. D doesn't record. Right. That's great. Yeah. I mean, what a great I, pairing. Certainly, there's no lack of history of people who know nothing about studios or music who wanted to be involved. <laughs> but it also was to her, I mean, we were really close, you know, back in the day. And she saw this as a big opportunity for me. It was like right. At that point in my life where I was realizing that the sort of returns on my continuing touring were plateauing <laughs> and what the fuck am I doing next? You know, yeah. what's the next act from here? And yeah. she was excited to, to go in on something with me and to try to like build something from scratch that she didn't know anything about, you know? It's been a very rewarding partnership over the years. A few episodes back, I uh, I was in Nashville and I interviewed Jakir King, a former Bay Area engineer, and we really walked through some of the early uh, dot-com bubble bursting, real estate exploding, earth-shattering events that really started to be the undoing of the Bay Area recording music scene. Obviously, people are still recording people are still making music in a different scene than it was when I was of the, of the times I was talking about with Shakira. But what do you think is the state of affairs for the Bay Area in, from your perspective? Do you want me to talk for an hour? <laughs> <laughs> Not entirely. Yeah. But no, give, I, give me a summation. I mean, what? because you're I mean, it from It's the tough. I mean, I'm from here. I love it here. My family's here. I'm very close with my family. Yeah. My great-grandfather immigrated here from Sweden and... I think we've always felt, my entire family has felt very lucky that he made that decision. That being said, I spent a part of last summer sort of interviewing other cities that we might live in with my wife because we were evicted from our old house in San Francisco uh, because the people who owned it wanted to sell to the highest bidder. Rents are insane. You know, I was talking about existential threats that you set money aside for. I mean, I do, that is maybe my other big worry is that at some point, literally nobody doing anything interesting can afford to live here anymore. That is my concern. Yeah. But, you know, there are still people, you know, I still have a waiting list 
I don't even want to tell you how long for rehearsal rooms. I mean, there's a lot of people still here, still doing music. But, you know, the overall Bay Area thing is basically kind of a nightmare. But the nightmare is happening everywhere. The nightmare is happening in Austin. The nightmare is happening in Seattle. San Francisco is the poster child for sort of this apocalyptic battle of income inequality and sort of just the nightmare that our country and the world is right now. It's interesting. I, it's happening everywhere. Because I, 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 there's there were cranes in Nashville. There were cranes. Uh, all the Lyft drivers I talked to were like, "Oh yeah, so many people a week are moving here." And I said, "Man, I, I, in fact, I said it to several people. I said this is a fantastic town with a lot of great music and history, and a lot of great music happening, and a lot of very talented, creative recording and music people. And I hope that what happened to the Bay Area does not come here because." It could really be a major disruptor. Yeah, but it, I mean, barring barring sort of major global financial collapse, it will. Capitalism likes to turn these things into cute varieties of what they were. I mean, New Orleans, I love New Orleans. I still love going to New Orleans. But in many ways, it's been turned into a Disney version of its former self, you know? I guess you could almost say the same about Vegas in, in some respects. Well, there's nothing I've ever liked about Vegas, so I don't <laughs> give a crap. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, there used to be the days of it was kind of the Wild West and, you know, gangsters and and it was a little bit different. But then, like, the corporate world kind of moved in and kind of cleaned it up and straightened it out in some ways, but also... But also wink and a nod to what makes them money. Yeah. Once the money comes... What are you going to do? And also, once wealthy people are like, what you people are doing here is really cool. I want to be a part of it. But then as soon as they're a part of it, it doesn't exist anymore. So let's talk about that. You've been interviewing other cities. What are some cities you think that you could move to? It's hard to say. I mean, for me, I've been to every state except Alaska, uh, just part of my touring history. I've been to all kinds of places that I would love to, or I would be happy to stay. You know, everything from standard places that you would think of a West Coast kid thinking of moving, you know, Portland, Seattle, whatever. But like, I mean, I've had amazing times in Chattanooga. Um, But the thing for me is this is where my family is. And that's a really hard thing for me to walk away from. My parents are getting older. I have seven siblings who have all stayed nearby. I've got, you know, I don't even know, 10 nieces and nephews who I want to watch grow up and not be totally absent from. Plus the fact that, I mean, my basic life at this point is whatever it's been now, 13 years, something like that. I've been running a business that I'm part owner of, and you don't just slide into another city and reconstruct that. Or for that matter, as a 42-year-old dude, just go out on the open job market. In today's youth culture, you know, 42 is already pretty used up. (laughs) Yeah. If if this was the movie Logan's Run, you'd be dead. Exactly. So, and on top of that, I mean, you know, I I have a lot of other things I like to do. I mean, in a lot of ways, I think I made a poor decision to not just go into like being like an electrician or something because I love working with my hands. Yeah. And there are times where just, you know, when you own your own business, especially in recording and everything, you have to worry about like, you know, just putting your face out into the world. And, you know, there's worry every night, you know, what's going on. And uh, in some ways, uh, it would be nice to, you know, get home from work and just leave it at work. Here's something that I notice about you is that, um, I mean, you are on social media personally, because I've I've interacted with you on social media, but um, I don't see a strong presence of the studio and social media and, and marketing message at all from you because you rely on word of mouth. And the studio's already kind of busy. Was that a conscious decision? Uh, 
it drives Scott Evans crazy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what drives Scott Evans crazy? That I don't uh, put the studio out there more. I've always been terrible at self-promotion. I hate it. Really, all of my bandmates hated it too. I mean, it's probably one of the things that handicapped us in some ways. I just, I love creating. I love... I love the studio itself. Mm-hmm. I hate being that guy who's out there every day flogging it, taking pictures. And lo- I, honestly, I hate the modern world. <laughs> I hate social media. You know, there's the great side of it, which is I love that there are these people who I met on tour who are just like amazingly wonderful people who I would not have any idea what happened to them. If this was 20 years ago, they would be footnotes in my past, many of whom probably would have been forgotten. Um, who I still interact with, and I know that they have kids, and I know they're happy. I, you know, and that's great. But for the most part, it's just like it's just not my bag. And I guess I'm lucky that I don't really feel that I have to be flogging it every day. Yeah. But even yeah, you know, and I have been doing a little bit, just kind of putting stuff out there for people to see, like some of the repair work. You know, there's a lot that goes into just keeping the place working that people probably don't realize, you know, but it's just not my thing, man. I get it. You don't want to do it. Is it something that you would ever consider farming out to somebody else to do? You, I've thought about it, but that's also weird because then somebody else is representing you and I've never been comfortable with that either. <laughs> and that, that I totally understand because I'm in control of all my own websites and through just years of frustration with web website builders and messaging and all that, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to drive the boat. Yeah. So I hear you. I would do the same. Yeah. I mean, Scott actually did start an Instagram studio uh, account for the studio and occasionally put stuff up for me or whatever. And I trust him implicitly. So, I mean, that's good. It's just, uh, and I have been trying to do a little bit more. It's just, uh, but essentially it's just really not my world. I don't, I just don't like the whole thing. Some people like to get up and run in the morning. Some people like to get up and smoke pot. Some people, you know, like to go to the gym or whatever. Are there any things like that that you do when you get up in the morning? Because every time I see you, you're full of energy. You're working. When I think working class, I always think of you, to be honest with you. <laughs> you don't really like showboat or any of that stuff. You just you just do your business. And I think that's one of the reasons I really uh, – I have a lot of respect for you. Well, as far as doing business, I mean, the thing the thing that has made Shark Bite work is that I I can wear a lot of hats. I can do everything from electrical work to construction to studio repair, amplifier repair. I'm not necessarily great at any of them, mm-hmm. but I'm solid in a number of disciplines. And even before, you know, the internet existed, I've always been an autodidact. Like, you know, I, I as a kid, I was always reading books in the library and trying to teach myself how to do things. I mean, like when I was in high school, not only did I have my crappy Fostex four track, but I had like the Huber and Runstein, I think it was books, the record modern recording techniques. I checked out every book on recording you could. And like, you know, I could recite all these things to you. I couldn't apply them at all. <laughs> but, you know, that's just always been part of me. And it's how we made the studio work, because in the early days I was getting paid next to nothing mm-hmm. and we couldn't afford to hire people to take care of stuff. So like the first time. The ventilation fans on the roof went out. I got up there. I took them apart, figured out that the motor was smoked, took it to a small motor repair shop. And, you know, it ended up costing 150 bucks to rebuild this motor. But if I'd called an HVAC guy out, he would have charged me $1,000 to take everything apart. So to that extent, I don't, I often don't have a routine because each day I could be called on to do some 
other repair or whatever. Mm -hmm. These days we're stable enough that there's a lot of things I've learned. It's better to hire somebody to do Mm -hmm. and do right the first time. Although a lot of times you find you spend money and it still doesn't get done right. And that's frustrating, but multitasking and being able to do a lot of different things at the studio has always been a big part of, of what I do. And it's one of the reasons why I've never been able to fully dedicate myself to just like being the engineer there because it's, there's too many things that I could get called on to do while I need to be focusing on nothing but music, especially yeah. if you've got like a five-day lockout or something. Uh, that's too many days of me not fixing something for somebody. And then as far as routine stuff, I mean, basically every morning my wife and I walk our two dogs three-plus miles. And uh, I am a creature of habit, but basically the only other thing I do all the time is go out to pizza on Sunday night and drink beer with my wife. <laughs> Other than that, the days could be whatever they are. Well, you know, the, they say that those who live to be over 100, the common trait is, is, or the common denominator is walking, daily walking. It was something my godfather kind of taught me. He loved walking everywhere. He was a city guy. And I mean, I used to go spend the weekends with him and he'd be like, hey, we're going to go walk and get breakfast. I'm like thinking, oh, cool. We're going to walk down the street because I'm hungry. Next thing I know, we're walking across the Golden Gate Bridge to Sausalito. I'm like, what are we doing? This is insane. Why didn't we just take the car? This is stupid. But at some point I learned to love it. You know, he he also would take me on backpacking trips. And at first I was like, you know, what? (laughs) 30 pounds and we're going to just walk? And at some point I just grew to love it. And I have to say something... You know, the things you get out of school or whatever. When I was like 16 years old, I was already pretty solid ne'er-do-well, you know, hanging out at the smoker's corner at school and stealing liquor and all that kind of stuff. But there were all these dorks who joined the cross-country team. And I liked them. We, you know, they were nice to me and they were like, you should really join the cross-country team. And I basically did just so I would have some friends at high school. And it's probably one of the best skills I got out of my schooling years is running is the ultimate thing that de-stresses me. Hmm. Like, Last night I got home. It's been a crazy week at the studio, air conditioner repair, just crap to take care of. And it's like, just run. And basically, if I'm in bed and I'm sighing, my wife is like, you need to run. <laughs> so uh, that's another thing, like you're saying. Little, little habits, little ways of coping. But so so tell me about your, your past brush with... Uh, cancer. So 1999, I'm 23 going on 24 years old and uh, I got leukemia. In retrospect, realized I'd been sort of declining for a while, but it was one of those things where when you do it gradually, people tend to not notice sort of what's happening. What do you mean declining? You know, my friends would say, oh, you're so pale and I had no energy mm. and oh, you know, you need to eat more bananas. You know, and, was just, and eventually, uh, it got to the point, I played a show in Santa Cruz and I, I basically collapsed after the show and uh, had to have my old buddy Kyle uh, drive my van home because I just, I couldn't focus at all. And then it got to the point where, I mean, I couldn't climb a flight of stairs without having to sit down for five minutes and catch my breath and my heart would be going nuts. And what happened at that time is I was going to the doctor and the doctor looked at me and I was this sort of tattooed punk rock kid and uh, he basically thought I was a junkie and wouldn't believe me that something was wrong. So they kept putting me off and finally did a blood test and they made me wait a week for my blood test results. And by the time I finally went in there, he's looking at the test results and he's like, wow, oh, wow. (laughs) So basically I had about a quarter of the amount of hemoglobin a healthy adult male of 24 should have. So I had no oxygen carrying capacity um, because all my bone marrow was impacted with cancer cells. So I did uh, seven months of hardcore chemo, 
And basically the deal was I would go in for maybe four days. I'd get out for about a day. And then usually I would come back with no immune system and I'd be sick. And then there was usually about one week in between all that, or maybe three to four days where I could go in and record the American Steel record we were working on, which was called Rogue's March that Kevin Army was recording with us. And so that basically became like my lifeline was getting, my whole focus was get through it, get out of the hospital, go to the studio, record. So, uh, and then I had to do two and a half years of follow-up chemo after that. The doctors thought I was kind of crazy, but I got right back to touring and I looked like Uncle Fester. (laughs) I was bald and bloated from steroids, but you know, it's like you just keep moving and keep doing what you love to do. And so that's, that's what I did. And I definitely think there's part of that experience that is part of why I kind of grabbed onto the getting to do the studio thing. Mm-hmm. I think I had a better sense maybe than some of like, there's a limited sell by date on what we're doing here and I need to figure out what's going to happen in the future just because I knew sort of the tenuousness of things. But it's uh, 18 years now since my first remission. So with any luck, I'll be doing a 20 year anniversary marathon in a couple of years. And uh um, you know, for the most part, that all is pretty much in the rearview mirror, and I don't think about it too much anymore. They were able to rid you of the cancer with chemotherapy. Correct. If that, if you, if you went into remission today, would you take that same approach, or are you absolutely okay? Yeah, I mean, for the type of leukemia I had, uh, I was very lucky. It, the treatment they did had just stopped being experimental. Mm-hmm. Um, if I were to have done it even a year earlier, I would have had to have like all these extra tests, like a bone marrow. I think every couple of weeks or whatever, which sucks. It's no fun at all. But since it had gone past the experimental phase, they weren't sort of micromanaging all the testing, you know, to figure out just to sort of prove that their method was working. Mm-hmm. But the success rate, they still were sort of classifying me as a juvenile because I was right. It, it gets a lot harder to fight the older you are. Mm-hmm. But that particular protocol that was very new at the time had a very high success rate. Hmm. And the damaged chromosomes I had were particularly, were indicative of a high degree of success. So it was a shitty thing to go through. But, you know, here I am 18 years later with basically very minor ill remaining effects from that. So I clearly have zero complaints. So you had cancer when you were in your band, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So, and you were 24. Were you still on your parents' insurance then? I shouldn't have been but I was. Ah, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They were able to, to make that work, which was a bit of a miracle. Yeah. Yeah. And but, obviously yeah. if it were, if you were to go into remission today, it'd be a different story. I mean, if I were to have it today, it would be a very different story. Uh-huh. My insurance now is nowhere near what they had back then. My mom was a school teacher and had, you know, school teacher policies 20 years ago were compared to what anybody can get today. They were Cadillac policies. And I will say with the insurance thing, I mean, being able to have insurance with my health history is one of the things that's allowed me to do the studio, you know, uh, for a long time, it looked like I was going to have to get some sort of corporate job that would have made me utterly miserable just to have insurance. I mean, not having insurance is not really an option for me, just beyond the actual cancer coming back. I mean, the chemicals they pumped me full of weren't exactly nice. No, no. And I mean, there, there could be shit that's still coming. So, yeah. And plus, you, I mean, I mean, nowadays it's like you have a pre existing condition. Exactly. You know, I think musicians and engineers and, you know, those of us who are doing the arts for a living, 
I, I think probably already are, but need to be extra concerned about what's helping, happening with uh, health insurance policy in this country. Absolutely. And I can say that there has been one, two, three, four, and maybe some others that I'm not aware of who've been on the show who've had cancer and have survived it. That's, you know, obviously as we get older and that conversation just keeps coming up like time after time after time. So, yeah, it's, I think it's very critical, especially those of us in this field of work where it tends to be a little, those of us who are entrepreneurs in the sense of studio owners or freelancers or whatever in the world of recording, we definitely have to pay attention to what's going on with health policy. At least in the United States. A couple of final questions, kind of financially related. Is retirement something you save for? Uh, no. Okay. My wife and I, whenever people talk about retirement, we just laugh. I yeah. mean, we're both self-employed. Yeah. Um, I'm making some moves to do some other stuff that might make that more plausible. Although even then, it probably just means having more of a safety cushion for when something catastrophic eventually more likely than not happens. One of us getting sick or something like that. You know, one of the things for us being self-employed, we don't have any sort of like disability insurance. So three years ago, maybe my wife does hair for a living. She owns her own salon and we were, she was going snowboarding. I was on skis and she blew her elbow out to the point where she had to have like cadaverous ligaments put in and stuff. And it's like, Oh, you can't work for two months. And Oh, by the way, this is the same month we're getting evicted from our home through no fault of our own. And you, you know, it's obviously there have been other things like this in my life, but like you realize like you need to have some sort of backup cushion, but you know, living in the Bay area, uh, we're extremely fortunate right now. After a couple of years of basically, uh, being rootless, we were able to get onto a lease that is rent controlled. So we went from really struggling to being extremely fortunate. Mm -hmm. But before we got extremely fortunate, I mean, we were paying $3,000 in rent a month. And so it's one of those things where I feel like we're both reasonably successful as, at what we do. Yeah. I never saw myself making a lot of money. But if you had told me I was going to make what I make now as a kid, I'd be like, fuck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the reality is that it, it it's not enough here. Right. So yeah, retirement has always been a, a longstanding joke, but elusive. Um, you know, we do have to think more about that. You know, she's 47 now, I'm 42. And so it may not be so much as the idea of uh, what baby boomers think of retirement as, as a, you know, well, let's at least try to plan for the very worst. I'm sure some of the, the things you've learned running a studio kind of apply to your life too. I mean, talk about planning for disaster, planning for these contingencies or these, you know, situations for the studio, but some of that really applies to one's life too. I mean, you could choose to run it like, you know, uh, a fly by night business or you can, meaning your life, or you can choose to, you know, kind of get it a little more structured the best you can. Or Yeah. And I, I think I try to do a mix of those things, you know, <laughs> no matter how you look at it, it's going to be a short trip. <laughs> so it's like, you know, uh, I don't want to spend my whole time worrying about a future that may not exist yeah. and not not do things that are meaningful and interesting and compelling to us now. Yeah. I know my godfather used to always say to me, he was like, well, you know, there's a couple ways you can go about it. He's like, my sister decided to be, you know, a postal carrier, consistent work, you know, not high stress, whatever. And they were able to do all the things they wanted. And 
whereas he was sort of like super dedicated to work and was kind of looking at the end, like at retirement, and that's going to be where all the real shit happens. And he ended up dying six months after his retirement, you know? Uh, so things like that are kind of instructive to me. So I, you know, life is a balancing act. I try to be better at planning for stuff and thinking about uh, the future and that we're getting older and that kind of thing. But like, I don't know, man, at some point it's like, well, let's just go have some fucking pizza and go to the bar and get hammered. Fuck it. <laughs> but we're here now. Yeah. Let's enjoy it <laughs> yeah. because it could be over tomorrow. Exactly. Wow. Well, cool. Well, on that note, thank you, Ryan. Thanks for thanks for coming on and jabbering with me. Thanks for thanks for having me. You yeah. probably shouldn't have given me coffee before we did this. Like, <laughs> got all jacked up and yeah. ran my mouth. That's all part of the plan. Uh. <laughs> there it is, Ryan Massey here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Great to have Ryan on, and uh, great studio. Yeah, I will continue to work there. And uh, yeah, not much else to say. It's a great place. He's a great guy. Knows what he's doing, and I really appreciate it. So, but it's time to go. We got to thank everybody. Hey, thanks, Cliff Truzell, Chuck Smith, and Cole Williams. I want to thank our sponsors, Lot and Audio, Audio Technica, Universal Audio, Focal Monitors, and GearSluts.com. And hey, thanks to all of you. I appreciate the continued listenership. Uh, keep it up. Yeah. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.